You picked a great Sunday to be with us. We have a guest speaker today. His name's Dave. And uh, I've known Pastor Dave. We met uh, maybe a handful of years ago, eight or nine years ago. He's pastored here in the community. He's pastored two other churches. Uh, I, I brought this this time because I tried to do it by heart last two service. So here, I won't read it all to you, but I want to tell you, he's done so much uh, with his ministries. It's just too much to remember. But David is a preacher, a teacher, and a lecturer in colleges and seminars all over the world. He, his work has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Time Magazine. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So he has done so much. He, uh, his last assignment was here in Jackson. He's pastored a church in the community for uh, many years. Uh, and even though he's had all those accomplishments, like personally, when we moved here, uh, back in 2013, and we launched our church in 2014, it was Pastor Dave and his church that was one of the first churches to reach out to us and welcome us to the community. And when we met for the first time, I'll never forget this, uh, he had said this, and other uh, of his staff had said this to us, so I understand that it was a culture, it was really about the community of Jackson, but he would say to us, every time I drive past your church, I pray for you. And, and I, I would feel those words, like I believe that he would pray for us. And so, um, and I felt convicted. So when I passed their church, I started praying. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, so thank you. And I did, I did feel, those, feel those prayers. But so he's in a new assignment now. And listen, his assignment took a lot of courage. It took a lot of faith because it would be easy to stay in a pastoral position where you are paid and, you know, your, your resources are taken care of through the generosity of the church. But he stepped out in faith and launched his new ministry called Phosaurus Chapter House. And, uh, and what they do is uh, not just for pastors, but what launched it was he wanted to be a pastor to pastors, and especially pastors who are creative. So he has pastors from all over the world that come to the chapter house where he inspires them so that they will go back and bring the best out of their congregation. So literally right here in Jackson, it's the only one in the world too. This only ministry in the world that is doing this where he's bringing in pastors from all over the world and then they're encouraging other pastors. So they go back and stay in ministry and bring fresh life to their communities. So he's been worshiping with us for a few months now. So I'd asked him if he would come and, and share because uh, I want to honor what he's done for our community. I want to honor for what he's doing right now for pastors uh, because he loves this city and he loves the church and he loves pastors. So would you please welcome David McDonald. Come on up. And take your liberty in the Holy Spirit. Morning, church. Great to be with you today. Um, like Mike said, I was a pastor in local churches for, for 28 years. And in 2001, I started uh, training pastors. And you know, there's a funny thing, when you, when you start sort of researching, like, how do we get our pastors today? You find all these little odds and ends of the Christian story that, that maybe you've never heard of before. And one of my favorite ones was about the Fasarians. And it comes from the second and third century in Rome. Now, no, nobody can say the word Fasaris. Mike, you did it correctly. Thank you. We're not actually sure how it's supposed to be pronounced. It's spelt Fosors, but that sounds really uncomfortable. So, so we just say Fasarians. But just so you feel good, say, say Fasares. Thank you, thank you. So that we found this group of, of grave-digging pastors in the second century. Now, what happened was early on in the history of the Roman Empire, Christianity became outlawed. 
And so Christians could have their property seized, they could be arrested, they could be fed to lions, they could be burned at the stake, they had all of their rights removed. So it was no longer convenient for Christians to keep meeting in churches. Instead, they had to be smuggled underground, typically into the catacombs underneath Rome and what's, what's now the Vatican. And so these pastors were the people responsible for sneaking them into these underground graves where they'd serve, you know, black market baptisms and clandestine communion services and stuff like this. And then these pastors had day jobs as grave diggers. That was kind of like their cover. You know, they could be secret agents. And they got the nickname Fasares because there's a really ugly bug that digs in the ground there. It's a sand wasp. And so the Roman centurions started calling the grave digging pastors Fasares or Fasarians as a way basically to say, you're a dirty cockroach, you goofball. And, you know, it was a, a slanderous term that then those pastors turned around and expropriated for themselves. And I love, I love that the pastors were like so dignified and had such a godly pride to them that what the enemy meant for evil, they expropriated for good. And they wore this as a badge of honor. Well, I'm gonna tell you more than I told the other two services because there's fewer of you, so God likes you better. So what happens is the pastor starts sneaking people down into these grave sites, into these underground graves so that they can do these secret worship services. And then the people all leave and they go back home, but the pastors have nowhere to go. They don't have any homes, they don't make any money, so they sleep in the graves. And then the pastors, you know, they get bored, they have ideas, and they start drawing pictures all over the catacombs. Some of them are really crude drawings, you know, stick figures. Some of them are really beautiful. They get beautiful frescoes. But all of the, the quote-unquote, like, catacomb artwork that you see comes from, or at least the earliest ones, come from those Fasarian pastors. And I became captivated by the idea that there were pastors who could express their creativity as part of their ministry. And it wasn't like they were doing creative baptism services. No, the creativity of God was flowing out of them so that, so that even in a place of death, they could bring life and new life to God's people. Now, we have one historical uh, Fasarian. His name was Diogenes. That's the only person whose name we know. And there's a, a fresco of Diogenes uh, underneath the Vatican. And he's holding in one hand a, a pickaxe and in another hand a lantern. And these are sort of the two sigils of the original Fasarians. And, you know, because they had to, you know, dig in the dark. So you got to be able to see and you got to be able to dig. And people go, well, what happened to them? This sounds like a really cool group of people. Well, what happened was they got totally, um, oh, what is, what's a synonym for screwed? And they got totally screwed is what happened. Okay, so, so Constantine takes over the church and, uh, and you know, takes, has under this sign conquer his big vision, you know. So Constantine converts to Christianity and immediately Constantine decides that all of the churches that are already exist are now going to be legitimized and the state is going to control them. And so now that Constantine has all this religious power, all of these little aristocrats in the Roman Empire are trying to curry favor with Constantine. So they start applying for church jobs. Because honestly, everybody can be a pastor. You only work one day a week. It's the easiest job ever, right? So they start applying for all these church jobs. And real quick, you get all these political cronies who get appointed over different churches. And they become like the first princes of the church. But none of them are, at least doesn't seem like many of them, were sincere, ardent followers of Jesus. They were just political appointees. And so the people that did all the real ministry, the Fasarians, were sort of left to like sweep the floors, you know, clean the toilets, whatever that work was, while these aristocrats took credit for the churches. And then they got into turf wars. I promise I'll, I'll make a point out of this here in a moment. I'm just geeking out about history and um, you're welcome. It's all 
So yeah, so then they, they get into these turf wars because the bigger your church was, the more influence you had with the government. Totally different than today, by the way, wink nudge. Okay, so they start growing bigger and bigger churches and in order to, to, to like vie for political position, they need to hire like muscle. So they hire street thugs to become clergy but they don't want to actually have the street thugs up preaching the word of God or leading baptisms or anything like that. So they give the street thugs, guess which name? Fasarians. So by like 50 years after Constantine, the name Fasarian could mean artist who took a vow of poverty and did everything to serve the people of God, or it could mean like God's apes who are going to beat you up if you don't go to their church. And, and, and real quick, by about 70 or 80 years after Constantine, the Fasarians completely disappear from church history. And I thought, that, that's so brutal. It's so brutal that something so, so pure and so noble could have been so corrupted by government, by greed, by position. And, and I just kind of kept wrestling with the story, living with the story. And I thought, you know, I, I want to pick up the mantle of the Fasarians because I'm an artist, I'm a musician, I'm a creative type, and I go, I, I miss the fresh expression of God's creativity in the church. I mean, God is first revealed to us as a creator, and God makes us in his image and likeness. We, too, like God, we're, we're creators. That doesn't just mean that we're artistic. It could mean that we have business creativity. It could mean that we have medical creativity, technological creativity, etc. So, so we're supposed to create alongside God and perpetuate the work of our creator, and, and I just don't see it. By and large, in the church, there is a dearth of creativity. I mean, I was at a church the other day, and they, they were singing songs that were 50 and 75 years old. I was like, I'm pretty sure the psalmist said, sing unto the Lord a new song. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with every now and then playing an oldie but a goodie, but, you know, I mean, do we have to? I mean, really? You know? I, mean, well, I just believe that God's imagination is birthed in God's people to, to, to pour forth in, in new you know, expressions of, of holy goodness. And so I thought, well, I'm going to start training pastors a new way. I mean, I've been training pastors a long time, but I want to train pastors in the fresh expression of God's creativity to resource them, to bring them together to do their best work. And so we got this idea that we would start a, a pastoral training center here in Jackson, Michigan. And we call it the Fasari's chapter house because a chapter house is a room in a European cathedral where pastors debate uh, public policy. You know, what are we going to do about this issue? What are we going to do about that issue? It's just one circular little room in a cathedral, but we thought, well, that'd be a cool name for the house because we bought this old Victorian manor house and started renovating it. And I, I put everything on the line for this. I worked four jobs for three years to come up with a down payment for this house. I mean, we were doing this all on our own. I was working at a publishing company that I was running. I was a full-time pastor. I was a church consultant. I had a full course load as a professor. So I'm going 800 miles an hour trying to give birth to this dream that I, got, I believe God has placed within my heart. And, and it was insane, man, because there was so much opposition, and I couldn't figure out why. People were saying all the normal sort of stuff that you imagine, you know, like, this is stupid, nobody's gonna come, it doesn't matter, you ought to just stay in your lane and focus on preaching, because you need, need to get a little better at that anyway, buddy, let's be honest. I mean, it was just so, so weird, and so we went uh, guns to the wall for a long time, for a long time, to make sure we could get that place, and then we renovated it, and I tell you what, I got it, I got it open, and then COVID hit. And one thing you're not supposed to do during COVID is come to Jackson, Michigan. 
And I was so frustrated. I was like, God, I know you gave me this dream. I know you put this vision in my heart. You've been with me every step of the way. But now here at like the one yard line, I feel like I'm totally alone. I'd been robbed multiple times. I'd been physically attacked. I'd been emotionally attacked. My character had been assuaged. I'd been accused of every evil, wicked thing under the sun imaginable, usually by people who pretended they were good Christians. I mean, I was just like, Lord, and I sit in the back here. We've, we visited Radiant one, one time was, you know, a couple years back. And I sat at the very back and I was like, God, what are you doing to me right now? This, this is awful. And the Lord, just, I felt like you were speaking to me. And I wrote down, keep going. Help is on the way. And I tell you all that because the next day I got a phone call from our pastor, Michael Popenhagen. And he came over to see me at the chapter house. You remember this? And we had a great conversation. Then he said two things. He said, Dave, I want you to know, uh, God told me to support you. And God told me that our church is going to support you. God promised that help was on the way. And it came through our pastor. And I want you to know, I have trained hundreds of pastors. And we have a great one. So before we get into scripture, I just want to say, well done, man. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. Now, all of that was a, a lengthy prologue, so I can tell you, man, I know what it's like to follow your dreams, and I know what it's like to pay the price for it. And it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. And I want you to know that your dreams, the dreams that God has placed within your heart, are the most important thing about you. Now, when I say dreams, I mean like a, a noble ambition, uh, an aspiration to do something that would bless others in the name of Jesus Christ. And you've got those dreams. Now, maybe you haven't woken up to them yet. Maybe you're not aware of what they are, but they're there, man. See, our, our dreams energize us. They motivate us. And they clarify our behaviors with noble purpose. I mean, you figure out what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to do it because you're inspired by a dream. You got no dreams, that means you come home every night, you watch Netflix, you eat macaroni dinner, Saturday you sleep in, play video games in your mom's basement, celebrate your 40th birthday, keep going on and on and on until you die. But when you got 60, 60 <laughs> what video game do you play? I'm so curious right now. But when you got dreams, man, you can't, you can't sit still. You're thinking about them all the time. The Spirit of God is stirring it up in your heart and in your mind, and you are ready to go. Dreams motivate us. And they energize us. And dreams also transform us into better versions of ourselves. Because when God gives you a dream, it's for the future. God's not giving you a dream for right now. Like if the Lord said, Dave, I'm going to give you a dream that you're going to tell a long story for 10 minutes. That's not much of a thing. I can do that any day of the week. No, a dream is going to stretch you. A dream is how God forms you. A dream is how God summons you forward into the future, helping you become the best possible version of yourself with God's help for God's glory. And this is good news, friends. Like, none of you, none of you are yet the person God has called you to become. God looks at you and he goes, look, you're my son. You're my daughter. You got my inheritance, you got my spirit, you got my church, you got my word. Now, now let's get to work because we're going to make you big and we're going to make you strong. We're going to mature you and sanctify you, fill you with noble purpose and ambition to heal the world. doesn't matter if you're 17 or 75. God looks at you and goes, there's more. We're going to do more in you and with you and for you and through you. And when we do these things, when we pursue our dreams, they heal the world. 
to heal the world. Psalm 37, verse 4. That's where we're starting the scripture today. Psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That means when you love God, God is going to not only help you get the things that you're hoping for, but more importantly, God is going to plant those desires inside of you like a seed. That God gives you the desire. He supplies the desire. He provides the desire. St. Augustine, when he was talking about this passage of Scripture, he said, the essence of it is this, that you love God and do what you will. Love God and, and do what you want. Because the more you love God, the more God purifies your desires. So that when you feel like you want something, you can trust that the Holy Spirit is the person teaching you that that's what you're supposed to want. So like, let's say you're, uh, you know, looking for a, a godly spouse. And you think, is it okay to want that? Maybe God's calling me to be single. I guarantee you, if you know, if, if God's calling you to be single, you know, because you're not thinking about girls. And you're like, well, I think about girls all the time. Well, I got news for you, bro. You are not called to be single. <laughs> Let me just help you hear the Holy Ghost right now. You know, when you, when you want these good and noble things and you're pursuing God passionately, then you can trust the things that God has placed within you to pursue. And what happens is the more you want them, the more your behaviors are changed and transformed by those good desires. Like I remember when I was a little kid, you know, I really wanted to play drums in church. And so I said to my mom, mom, I really want to play on the worship team. And she goes, well, how about piano? I thought, no, the Lord can't work through the piano. It has to be the drums. Look at me, mom. I got a neck like a stack of manhole covers. I need to hit things for Jesus. And so finally we start getting into drum lessons. And I'm playing drums two hours and 20 minutes every day for the next two decades of my life so that I can use my ability on the drums to praise God. It is my desire that changed my behaviors so I could operate in the will of God and bless and serve other people. It's the same thing with you. Now, does your desire have to be artistic? No, of course not. You might just want a, a raise at work. Well, great, fantastic. That desire to earn a little extra money so you can take care of people, so you can provide people, so you can be more generous, you can help out the church and help out the community, help those who need that desire means you're gonna show up early and stay late. You're gonna have a sweet spirit. You're gonna work hard. You're gonna be a workman who shows yourself approved. And then you get the raise. Your desire for physical fitness means you're gonna eat a little better and sleep a little better and train a little harder. Your desire to know God means you're gonna pray, spend time in the scriptures, be attentive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. It's your desire that changes you. See, desire comes from God. It's rewarded by God. And, 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 and it's, ultimately, it keeps us healthy. Lack of desire, on the other hand, is symptomatic of depression. Don't miss that, man. If, if you have convinced yourself that you're not supposed to want anything, you're not a good Christian. You're a good Buddhist. Christians are shaped by godly desire. We are meant to want things Good things, noble things, cooperative things. That's how God moves us forward. And I think I can give you real quick five reasons why this is true. Number one, again, it's God that gives you your desire. Psalm 37, 4, that's a scripture we read earlier. Number two, these desires are like breadcrumbs that God doles out in front of you to teach you the will of God a step at a time. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. See, see that? 
God has prepared good works in advance for you. Now, the good works that he gives Travis are probably not the same as the good works he gives Daniel, probably not the same as the good works that he gives Zach or the good works that he gives Susan. The good works are different for everybody because God's a big God. He's got a few God tricks up his sleeve, you know? He can have more than one plan going on at the same time. And if you imagine this beautiful, great, majestic, loving God who knows you intimately looking down the kaleidoscopic tunnel of time, God's looking at you going, you know what? Dave's going to need some stuff to do. He's going to keep him motivated. So God creates a little sort of Holy Ghost booby trap and puts it in front of you. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make Dave a pastor. And then I, I'm like, oh, I, I want to be a pastor. And I take a step. I follow the first breadcrumb. And then the Lord says, you know, I'm going to give Dave a love for education and training. And, and then I'm going to give Dave the opportunity to, to receive training. Take another step and you follow the next breadcrumb. And then you follow it to become someone who trains others, who trains pastors. You keep following these breadcrumbs. And next thing you know that God has appointed you to work specifically with creative, imaginative pastors. And then the next thing you know, you're learning all this stuff in church history. And the next thing you know, you're opening up the world's first chapter house. And you're doing this a step at a time as you're obedient to God, the Holy Spirit. Now, for you, you might go, well, Dave, I'm not going to do any of that stuff. That doesn't even sound fun to me. Good. You don't have to be like me. I'll tell you, it's not easy. It's a trick, man. Are you looking at all these gorgeous tattoos all the time? Every time you walk by a mirror, got to remind yourself to be humble. It's hard, bro. <laughs> no, no, no. But your thing could be totally different. Like, like you could have a mind for business. And you think, well, maybe I'm just going to start my first business. It's just small. But you follow that breadcrumb, and the Lord helps you and stretches you and grows you. And then all of a sudden, you start thinking about franchising. And now you're into some, some serious money, and you want, what am I going to do with my wealth? Anything you want. Love God and do what you want. So you want to form an orphanage? Great. You want to form a missions organization? Great. You want to sponsor churches or pastors? Fantastic. Because that's how God leads you. And step by step, bit by bit, God's laying all these little booby traps in front of you going, come on, man, come on. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Just take the next step as you follow your dreams. Number three, these desires that when achieved will heal the world. I mean, that's kind of the big picture here, right? Like St. Paul says that, that, that we are agents in the ministry of reconciliation, we, we are people called by God to bring hope and healing to a world that's desperate for it. Now, there's a million ways to bring hope and healing. Could be through mental health. Could be through traditional health. Could be through education. Could be through love and friendship. There's a million ways to do it. And we each got to do our part. My part might be different than your part. That's okay. There's one body, many parts. Everybody does their part as we listen to God. But that, that's how the world gets healed. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus called his 12 disciples. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. He gave them authority to heal. In the same way, when you respond to the call of God, God is going to give you authority to heal. Now, a lot of people don't know that that's what authority is for. They think authority is to ensure compliance. They think a short authority is to make sure everybody goes and does what they need them to do. No, your, your authority, your, your power is for healing. 
Your, your power isn't to be proved right, isn't to win an argument, isn't to get up and flame strangers on Facebook. No, no, your, your authority is to heal. We cooperate with God in the redemption of the world, in, the, in anticipating what Jesus says is the renewal of all things. Number four, do you, do you need more stories or something? Are you bored? So, uh, I've done this a few times, so I have lots of, so you can hear so many stories. Yeah, no. These desires, once achieved, will also testify to others. First Peter 2.12, Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans. That's the new word I'm going to use for everybody who cheers for Michigan State, you pagans. <laughs> that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Look, two, two things are important there. Number one, like even when you're doing good stuff, you're gonna be accused of being bad. I just wish I knew that ahead of time. I remember I was a worship leader for, for four or five years. I, I was working at a church that r- real similar to Radiant. And, and my task, this was my mandate as a worship leader. As I, was, I was asked by the senior pastor, hey, we need to transition our church into contemporary worship music. And I was like, all right, I got it. And he's like, we've been a hymns church and a choruses church, and there's gonna be some conflict, but that's your, that's your job. I was like, okay, piece of cake, he says unironically because he's stupid, right? So I remember about a month in, I thought things were going pretty good. You know, we're slowly introducing some things. We're trying to massage the congregation, you know, out of the 13th century and maybe get them into the, you know, 1905s. You know, we're just, we're taking it easy. And I remember somebody coming up to me afterwards. And you know how, like, when people get so angry, sometimes their eyes shake back and forth, you know? And I swear, like, her incisors grew, you know, little horns came out her head. And she was like, you stop it. Stop what? You stop turning our church into the Dave Matthews Band. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, first of all, that sounds like a terrible church. I don't want to go there anyway. But I remember being so confused as to why I could be trying to do something good and have people accuse me of doing something bad. You know, I remember preaching one time, and I'm, I'm preaching literally the gospel. I'm preaching out of Romans. That's the most gospely gospel portion of the New Testament. And we had some guy, I never saw him before or since, he was kind of a weirdo, showed up at the church, and, and he was dressed like the Grim Reaper. And he walked down to the front, like down the main aisle while I'm preaching, and he goes, Repent. And he's talking to me. He doesn't mean everybody else. I'm supposed to repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. I said, bro, I'm getting there. Like we're on verse eight. Like give me five minutes, you know? But the truth is some people are just hell bent on telling you you're bad. Even when you're working so hard to be good. But that doesn't mean you stop endeavoring to do what's right because you're not performing for them. You're serving God. You're working to please God. And the other thing this passage shows us is that if over time you persist, you don't give up, you don't fall over, you don't go home and cry, you don't pout. If you persist longitudinally, your life is going to bear really good fruit. It's going to be obvious and evident to everybody. That's what Jesus said. Right? Good tree bears good fruit. Now, sometimes it's just not the season yet for fruit bearing. 
right? Sometimes it's winter, sometimes it's fall, but eventually there'll be a harvest time. And so you keep going over and over and over until those good deeds bear fruit and testify to others. Last but not least, number five, these desires, these things that you want, these God dreams that God has placed inside of you are the mechanism through which God is growing you. Like, even if you didn't get everything you wanted, that's okay. Because it's more important for God to get what God wants in you than for you to perform whatever magical feat you intended for God. Remember Hebrews chapter 11? You guys all know this part of the Bible? You're the late service. You really know the Bible. I'm just going to take that on faith. You know, Hebrews chapter 11, we call it the hall of fame of faith, right? Over and over and over, tells you all these people who are super faithful, these people who are amazing, that God totally blessed. They saw all these miracles. And then the back half of that chapter, it lists person after person after person who didn't get what they wanted at all. Some were killed with a sword, some were burned up with fire, and it says, nevertheless, they didn't receive all that God had promised them. You go, well, well did God fail? And it's like, no, 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 no. God doesn't love you for what you can provide him. God just loves you. He loves the journey you're on. He loves the adventure that you're on, a life of passion, romance, a, a, a life of, of, of a godly pleasure. And God's looking at you, watching you follow your dreams, and God's totally invested in the you-ness of it, not the it-ness of it. God doesn't need you to win so that he gets, you know, like better advertising. God's just working with you. Like if you play sports at all, you know, and you're coaching little kids, like let's say you're coaching kids hockey, you know they're not all going to the NHL. But you still want to see them grow. So too with God. He's looking at you going, I just want to see where we're going, man. Come on. Now, I tell you all this because, you know, we've been attending church here for a little while and, and we really enjoy it and enjoy the energy of this place and really enjoy our pastor. And, um, and one of the things that I appreciate most is that every Sunday when we gather together, there's such a sincere desire here to please God. I mean, you are focused on God. But what you gotta know is this. While you're thinking about God, God's thinking about you. All God's dreams, desires, and ambitions are centered on you. On growing big people, strong, healthy children, and you've got to grab hold of that and realize that God, God is for you. In fact, I, I remember a couple months ago, I was sitting, or maybe, maybe a month ago, sometimes time is fuzzy for me. You know, I was sitting in the back here during church. I thought, Lord, I get this privilege of speaking to Radiant Church, and I want to make sure that I, that I communicate what you've placed upon my heart for them and, and not screw it up so much, you know. And I thought God speak to me really clearly. He doesn't often do it like that, but that day I felt it really clearly. The Lord said, David, I want you to tell him three things. I love you. I'm with you. And I'm excited to see what you're going to do. Now, you, you think about that. God's supposed to know the future, right? Like, if God's supposed to know the future, how can God be excited to figure out what we're going to do? Like, shouldn't he already know what we're going to do? Well, th there's a kind of playfulness to the character of God in the Bible. And sometimes God waits with eager anticipation 
to see how we're going to play out. doesn't mean he doesn't know. It just means he's invested in a kind of divine curiosity. Like in Genesis chapter 2, God brings all the animals and he parades them in front of Adam in the Garden of Eden. And the scripture says he does this to see what Adam would name them. And you're like, you didn't know? Like, you didn't see, you know, platypus coming down the list and think maybe you ought to tweak that one a little bit? No, God is excited about what you're going to do. God is pleased by the anticipation of the things you will perform for him, with him, and because of him. And, and I think about it a little bit like this, you know. I mean, how, how can God know the future and yet still be excited about a future he kind of knows? I mean, what, what is that even like? And I thought, well, it's a little bit like if somebody walked up and punched Mike Tyson in the head. At that moment, we all know what's going to happen next. We all have divine foreknowledge because Iron Mike's about to drop him on his behind. And we know it, like we know what's coming. We know exactly what's coming, but we are so excited to see how it plays out. <laughs> well, that's the same kind of enthusiasm that God has for you. Look, God knows you're good at math. God knows you're good at science and technology. God knows you're good at business. God knows you have a heart for the lost. God knows that you have a heart of compassion for those who suffer prejudice and injustice. God knows those things. God knows the people around you. God knows the ingredients in your heart. God knows all your, your picadillos. He knows all your idiosyncrasies. He knows exactly who you are and what you're capable of. And he is excited. He is eating his Holy Ghost popcorn up in heaven watching you figure it out. That's the joy of being alive and cooperating with God's spirit. Now, real quick, you know all this stuff now. You know God's working to you and speaking to you through your dreams. So what are you supposed to do with it? Real quick, five things. Number one, pay attention to your dreams. Pay attention to them. Write them down. Talk them over with your friends. Test them. Pray about them. Because it may be that something you think is a dream doesn't really matter to you in six months then it was just kind of a good idea. Nothing wrong with that. But, but it may be that six months from now or six years from now, it's still burning a hole in your gut and you realize this is what God is leading me to do. Number two. I turn my Bible over to the other page. Number two. If you're not yet free to pursue your dreams or, or if you don't even know what your dreams are, then serve the dreams of somebody else. Early on in ministry, I learned that God's not going to entrust you with a vision of your own until you learn how to serve somebody else's vision. As a 21-year-old who's first starting out in ministry, that was really important for me to understand that this church isn't about doing what David wants. David's life is about submitting to the will of the Holy Spirit through the leadership of the local church. You know, it's the same thing for you, man. Maybe, maybe you're not sure what your dream is yet. And you're praying and you're praying and you're praying. And, well, don't just pray there. Do something. You know, get involved in the ministry at church. You know, get involved in all the wonderful things that are happening here. Get involved in your community and get around somebody else who does have a compelling vision, like your amazing pastor, and get in his slipstream and kind of see what it's like to watch somebody follow their dream. Catch some of it. Observe it. Get mentored that way. Number three, no matter what, stick to your core convictions. Now, by core convictions, I don't just mean like your 
doctrinal things or your theological things, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Jesus, Bible, Church, all that good stuff. I mean, like, there's some things that are just yours, like that you really care about, that maybe not everybody else does. That's okay. In my case, it's creativity. It's innovation. So I don't ever want to take a lesser opportunity that somebody other than God has provided for me that doesn't involve being creative. Because I know my Father in heaven, and I know he gives good gifts to his children. So I know if he's given me a gift, creativity is going to be at the center of it. It's one of the litmus tests for whether or not this is a good idea or a God idea. Does this fit Dave McDonald? No, maybe it fits somebody else. So it's probably their idea. I need to get out of the way. In fact, that's how I knew it was time for me to leave the local church. I was talking to my mom, a great godly lady, and she said, David, she goes, I want to know what your dreams are for your church. I said, well, Mama, I'm, I, I think all my dreams are with the chapter house. You know, it just doesn't make any money. I made less money last year than I have since 12th grade. You know, became a missionary to pastors. I said, I said well, Mama, I'm, all my dreams are with the chapter house. And she said, David, for as long as I've known you, you have been dreaming about every Sunday and every church season. If your dreams have moved on, you need to do that too because somebody else is dreaming those dreams and you're in the way. Isn't that? And I said, yeah. That's the Lord speaking through my mom. Yeah. So you, you just gotta know, man. You just, you just gotta know that you stick to your core convictions and you follow those dreams. Now, number four, you gotta refuse to accept the world the way it is. Listen, you look out at the world and you see... Um, you know, injustice, you know, racism. You see factions within the church that, that make you sick to your stomach. That, that's God telling you to get involved. Because we all look out at the world, we all see so many problems, but we don't all see the same problems. You could be totally burdened about the, the problems of illiteracy in our community. That's God's sign for you to get involved over there. You could be totally frustrated that there are still children in Africa dying of diseases for which we have cures. That's God's sign for you to get involved over there. You get involved because the world only gets better when the people of God rise up and say, enough's enough. Everything God is doing in the world today, God is doing through the church. It's the body of Christ. What are Jesus' hands doing? I don't know. What are yours doing? Where is Jesus involved? I don't know. Where do you go? What is God saying? I don't know. When's the last time you spoke up? God's working through you. And you've got to get tough. I mean, make no mistake. Whatever it is that God's placed on your heart, it's going to require a fight, man. It is going to be a bloody mess. Because there is another power at work that does not want you to succeed. And this fight that you're in, it's not a fight against flesh and blood. It's not against, you know, kingdoms, principalities, powers, co committees, politicians. No, no, no. It's a fight against the dark and invisible power. But it's a fight nonetheless. So, so you better get tough, man. Because you're going to be in it. My friend Nathan always tells me, he's like, dude, you got to calm down when you preach. You're like a, you know, God's bull in the china shop. And he, we're, we're close, so I can tease him. I say, well, yeah, well, that's better than being God's teacup in the bullpen. I mean, you got to get strong, man, because you're in a fight. Last but not least, what do you do with your dreams? You thank God that there's more to life than what you've already lived, and you joyfully embrace it.
Grace and peace, Radiant Church, we love you very much. Let me conclude in prayer, and my portion will be over. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the privilege of being in your house, surrounded by your people. God, embolden us, please. Give us the courage and the conviction to follow through on the dreams that you have given us. Keep us restless. Keep us up at night, struggling with the fact that we know you're calling us to more, to greater and more noble purpose. Bring us people around us who can temper us, who can train us, who can resource us, who can encourage us as we jump in the fight to work with you and save the world. We love you, Jesus, and pray these things in your name. And all God's people said, amen.